can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll continue our study of the Gospel of John. If you'll recall, briefly last week we were looking at Jesus being tried before the high priest Annas. And we were considering the primary focus was on how Jesus spoke openly to the world. How the message of the Gospel is a plain and simple and open open declaration. And that the call upon every person is to believe the promise which is inherently proclaimed in that gospel. Namely, the focus point we had was God promises that if we seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him. God promises that. And yet we also were made aware of the fact that we do not seek Him because our hearts are given over to sin. And the grace of God who promises to those who seek Him that we will find Him not only promises that, but then He initiates and comes and seeks and finds us. That's essentially a rundown from last week. And this morning, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 25 through 27 of John chapter 18. And so at this time, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me. We'll read these three verses together and then pray and begin. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would rid this place here and now of any pride, any arrogance or self-reliance. Oh, Father, we are dependent upon you in every way. Oh, God, I am dependent. I pray that you would attend unto us by Your Spirit. Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I ask that You would open it up to us. Lord, that we might see, even in these words, an encouragement for where our eyes should go, where our affections should go in the midst of our own failures. Oh God, let this be a help and a nourishment to us. Father, I pray that You would guard me from misspeaking, protect us from error, And shut my mouth if necessary. O God, You who have power over all things and all creation, we're cast upon You. Lord, I do pray for boldness and for authority. And I pray most of all, dear God, that we would have a sense of You communicating to us as only You can. Lord, that You would rend the heavens and come down, meet with us, that our worship would be true. And in spirit and truth. Father, I ask that you would do these things for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this sermon is The Dark Night of Denial. The Dark Night of Denial. In many ways, we began our thoughts a few weeks ago when we were looking at Peter's first denial of the Lord in the sermon, The Road to Denial. And in that last sermon, we were considering the different things in Peter's life that were leading him 
to denying the Lord. The different things that accompany the life of a Christian as they're making their way towards sin and ultimately denial. And then here today, we're going to really focus in on the Christian's experience in the midst of their sin and failure. And this is not a very popular thing, perhaps, to discuss, and it's certainly not a comfortable thing to experience. And yet, I trust God's purpose and providence in putting us in these verses today would be for our good and our benefit. And so, by way of introduction, I'm going to argue and hope to demonstrate from our text today that the essential pattern and illustration in these verses is that of a Christian who is wallowing in the miseries of their own sin. What we're going to see in Peter is this horrible reality of the way in which believers experience the time that passes between our sin and failure and our restoration. What does that block of time between our failure and our sin and then the restoration that we find in repentance and faith in Christ, what does that middle period look like? What's so important about that process as it unfolds here with Peter and with us? And let me just ask you as a Christian, can you think of any worse experience than having failed God, sinned, denied the Lord through your behavior or your thoughts or your actions or your words, having denied the Lord and having a felt sense of your guilt before God. I don't know of anything that is a greater inhibition or a greater uh, cause for us feeling a lack of awareness of communion and fellowship with the Lord than an unrepentant sin. I mean, today we're going to observe, Lord willing, at the end of our message, the Lord's Supper together, communing with God and with one another as we gather around this table. And even when you go and read in the Scriptures the, the words and language that's used around how we take the Lord's Supper, there's this, there's this nod towards us doing this without having dealt with our sin, how that can have negative consequences upon us. And I believe there's a principle in that that we're seeing here with Peter that our sin and not repenting of our sin does produce in us a feeling of separation from God. Now, I want to be very clear from the beginning a Christian cannot be separated from God. God never leaves the Christian. Jesus promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will not leave you. But your sensations, your feelings, your emotions, and your experiences of God are going to seem slighted or less as a result of sin. And so in light of that, I want to call your attention back to Psalm 51 for just a moment before we begin. Just to kind of set the stage here. Psalm number 51, look with me first at verses 1 through 5. In light of what we're going to see here with Peter, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So immediately we're seeing from David here in Psalm 51, this feeling that his transgressions, his sins, are hovering over his head and he needs God to do something about it. He needs the mercy of God to avail for him. And then in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin stains. And it's true that our sin separates us from God when we're lost. But as a Christian, there is a stain associated with sin. A feeling of guilt. A conscience that's not clean before God. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, have you ever had that kind of an experience as a Christian? One who has sinned and has a sense that your sin is ever before you. That you can't escape it. That you're constantly aware of your failure before God. Almost as though your sin has separated you from God. That's what David's experiencing here in Psalm 51. And I believe that's also what Peter is going to experience in our text and following him. And then if you look forward in Psalm 51 verses 7 through 12, just set under this for a moment. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, I'm arguing that Peter's experience in our text is one who has sinned against God and needs to have for himself the joy of God's salvation restored to him. And as Christians, the appropriate response to our own sin is an awareness of the fact that it's still an offense against God. And it ought to disturb and bother us and produce in us a kind of yearning to have the sin rid from us. Yes, Jesus died for it already, but I'm feeling the weight of this thing after I've done it. How is it that we're supposed to respond? Now, let me say this, that it is true. We know because we know the rest of the story. Peter is going to be restored. Peter was a genuine Christian. We know that our text reveals to us how miserable of a state Christian people are in because of their sin. And yet, do not imagine that if you're here today and you are not in Christ, that you're in a better condition than those who are Christians are in as a result of their sin. Think on it this way. If the periodic failures of Christians are wrought with suffering and misery, it must be true that the unbeliever's entire life is nothing but an endless array of lifeless scurrying that's leading to death. If Christians suffer as a result of their sin in their life, surely it is true that the way of the transgressor is indeed hard as well. And I think perhaps it might be appropriate to say that when Christians go through sorrow and grief as a result of their sin, that it is at one and the same time also a reminder to them of what their life was like before Christ. You follow my point here? So whether you're a Christian today who's cast down by a knowledge of your sin and failure, or whether you're a Christian who is in sin and needs to be made aware of your sin and failure, or if you're one who has never yet been born again and you know nothing but the emptiness and sadness of slavery to sin, my prayer is that our thoughts today would come forth to you as a trumpet call from God to come out of the dark night of denial that Peter is in. We begin in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, the first thing that we need to see in this text, Peter, Simon Peter, was standing and warming himself, is the way in which our unconscious patterns of behavior amongst unbelievers often indicate a heart which is not focused upon Christ. 
You remember we, we saw in a previous message that one true thing about sin and denying the Lord is that it often leads to more sin and more denial. And the company that we keep may in fact be a reflection of an influence upon the direction that we go. Does it seem insignificant to you that Simon Peter was standing and warming himself? Do you recall who are the ones he's with here? He's with the soldiers who were sent to arrest Jesus. He's warming himself, enjoying the comforts, the same comforts that these soldiers are enjoying. Now let me point this out. There was nothing inherently sinful about Peter warming his hands by the fire. There's nothing inherently sinful about Peter warming his hands with unbelievers who hate Christ. But there is a picture given to us in this account that shows us Peter pursuing relief and comfort in the exact same manner as those who are opposed to Christ and even doing so alongside them. Here's my point. I'm not saying Peter's in sin because he's warming his hands with these soldiers. What I'm saying is it's reflecting to us a character and an attitude of heart that's just fine comforting yourself and enjoying the same reliefs and the same pleasures as the unbelieving world around you. And that it oftentimes is going to accompany us when we're in sin. We're prone to the exact same kind of thing. 1 Corinthians 15.33, which is a quotation from another place, says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And it seems to me appropriate to suggest that Peter perhaps felt more at home with these soldiers at this time in light of his denial. Do you ever find that to be true? After you've sinned in some way, do you ever find that you're more comfortable being around people who are not radically pursuing Christ? Sure, you may have religious-minded people in your life, people you can get along with on the most part, but whenever you've been in sin, if you're around another Christian who wants to talk to you about the things of God, who wants to tell you what the Lord's been doing, every word out of their mouth is almost like a, a dagger to the heart, reminding you of what you've done. And in this way, I suggest to you that for Peter, maybe it was a little bit easier to be around these soldiers than it was around John or the other disciples or the Lord Himself. And one application I want us all to consider is that when you and I are enduring sorrow and darkness because of our sin and failure, we would do well to pay attention to the character of those who surround us, as well as the vain comforts that we might hope to receive from them. Consider it this way. Peter's here warming himself. He's, he, he's bringing himself a measure of comfort from the cold around these soldiers. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or profane are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse. The wounds of a friend. A friend who's going to talk to you about the things of God, though it may bring conviction. And though it may make you upset at the moment. The wounds of a friend. One who loves God and loves you. Are faithful and good. Better than the comforts that may come from an enemy. The next thing we see in verse 25, it says, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Now that's almost exactly, if not verbatim, what that servant girl had said to Peter already, isn't it? They're asking him again the second time. And yet I cannot but hear in this question the stinging accusation of Satan. Think of it this way. 
Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They say to Peter, You also are not one of His disciples, are you? Now, he's already failed the Lord. He's already acted as though he were not one of his disciples. He's already sinned. And we know that the devil entered Judas before this betrayal. And we know that Jesus told Peter that Satan sought to sift him as wheat in this ordeal. It only makes sense that it was the devil who was stirring these soldiers to put this very question to Peter. You follow the logic here? Jesus says Satan wants to sift you as wheat. And here you have some sifting going on. You have a question put to him. Now, can you imagine the smug look on the devil's face as he questions Peter here and the look of twisted delight upon hearing Peter's answer? And I wonder if you can relate to this. Perhaps in all the things I considered in studying out this text, this might have had the harshest effect on me thinking on it this way. Remember that this is following Peter's failure and denial. How often is it that Christians are bombarded by the whisperings of the devil about whether or not we're truly in Christ after our sin and failure? Peter has already failed. Here's the question. Well, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Has that ever entered your mind whenever you're confronted by your own sin, your own hypocrisy? The question comes, well, you're not really one of his disciples, are you? You say you're a Christian and yet you're living in sin. Surely you must not belong to him. The question comes, of course, this is a carrying out of what Jesus prophesied. And yet Peter's experiencing this as a real individual. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we often go through. And then Peter's answer says he denied it and said, I am not. The next thing that we've got to see is that Peter's answer, I am certain of this, that Peter's answer was an accurate reflection of how he felt at that time. I don't believe Peter is only out to save his own skin, though that may have been how it started with the servant girl. But Peter, surely, after already having denied the Lord, is feeling as though he isn't really one of his disciples. I don't know how a person who has just denied the Lord, can then turn right around and boldly proclaim that they are one of His. Do you follow what I'm saying here? The truth is that when as Christians we're confronted with our own sin, our rebellion, our, our denial of the Lord, we often feel like we're not really saved. You see, your feelings tell you that the devil's whisperings are right. The accuser of the brethren is right. You see, the contrast, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify with your spirit that you are a child of God and the ministry of the devil is to tell you you're not a child of God. That you are not connected to Christ. That you're not one of His disciples. I believe a common experience that Christians face during similar circumstances as Peter is that our sin has a tendency to lead us into a vicious cycle. Here we see Peter who's denied the Lord once then accusations come against him and drive him into a hopeless kind of despair. Imagine if there was any hope of Peter turning from his first denial after he denies the Lord here. How likely do you think he's going to all of a sudden turn back? And that's the way that lies work. That's the way that sin works. 
that there's this little web that gets started. And the further you get into the process, the harder it gets to back back out, to get out of that thing. You're surrounded by a web of lies and sin and deceit. And it becomes hopeless. And it leads you into further and further denials. That's what we see. And speaking of further denials, we press right along into verse 26. So here's the second denial we've just observed. Verse 26 says, One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, hold all our thoughts about Peter's experience for just a moment. And I just want to bring our attention to something that we might easily overlook. And it has to do with this reference to the relationship between this servant and the one whose ear Peter had cut off. One of at least one of the significant reasons that we're told about this relationship is this. These scriptures of ours are a historical record. That's one of the chief differences between history and myth and legend. Whenever you're given historical accounts and saying this man was related to this man, this man was born at this time, died at this time, when you're given these historical parameters around people's life, including relationships, it's a reminder to us that this is indeed history. It's not a fable. It's not just a, a lesson where we derive some kind of abstract moral benefit. We're reading about the real experiences of a real person in history. This man Peter and what he experienced and those around him experienced. What this means is that the truths that we're coming to in this account are meant to have a real and living impact upon you and upon me and our experiences in life. That we're to derive from this something that relates to human experience within history. But then we press forward and I ask, what is the significance of this leading us towards his third and final denial? One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? I'm prepared to suggest that another common experience that Christians have whenever they're in their sin and denying the Lord is that too often... We forget that those around us are watching us whenever we're in the midst of our sin. We forget that people see how we're living and what we're doing. And this is one such example. Our tendency when we face trials like Peter did is to become self-absorbed and forget the implications of our testimony to others. When I'm so overwhelmed by a trial and I'm feeling the way surely Peter's feeling here, well, I'm not all that worried about what my life is saying to those around me. But the fact is, though we may have forgotten to watch them in the moment of distress, they are still watching us. And a strong exhortation and encouragement to us all against denying the Lord is seen in this. Peter missed an incredible opportunity to give a firsthand witness of the truth here. Here's someone, think of this. This man is a relative of Malchus who had his ear lopped off, then supernaturally put back on. He's heard some amazing things about this man, Jesus. Peter, you've got a perfect opportunity, brother. Tell this man, this servant, about who Jesus is. His cousin, his relative, is already going to tell him about having his ear put on supernaturally. Affirm the truth. Uphold the truth. Share the gospel. Peter missed an opportunity to proclaim truth. And it's important for you and I 
to realize that whenever we're so blinded by our sin and our misery that we experience because of it, that in that time, we're probably missing opportunities to have an eternal impact on those around us. And then we get to verse 27. And this may seem like a short-lived sermon, but we'll trust the Lord on how far this last bit's going to stretch. We see Peter again denied it. And again at once, a rooster crowed. The last thing we see, at least in our three verses, is Peter's final denial of the Lord. This is the culmination of Peter's sin. This is the end of the satanic accusation and the crowing of a rooster. And you can almost imagine the sound of this rooster crowing as though it were an anthem of the devil's victory in Peter's life. This is the sound that finalizes his last denial. And for all accounts and purposes, things are not looking too good for Peter at this point, are they? Peter denying the Lord in this way. It would be perfectly reasonable for you and I, if we didn't know the end of the story, and that's the thing about history, it unfolds in stages and processes, and this was happening at a period in time, Peter did not know for sure that he was going to be restored after this. Though the Lord had promised him that, the Lord's promised you and I as Christians that He'll not leave us, that He will not lose any of us as His people. And yet, in the moment that a Christian's enduring the weight of guilt because of their sin, we too forget the promise of God to sustain us. But this is the thing I want to focus on for a moment. It would be reasonable for you and I, if we didn't know how the story ended, to expect to read of Peter after this, that Peter, having denied the Lord, went and found a dead donkey, took the rope off the donkey covered with maggots and flies, and hung himself in a nearby tree straight into eternity in the judgment of God. There is another in the Scriptures that that exact thing happened to. So what we see here, what I want to begin driving at is what is the difference between the certain despair, the downcast soul that Peter was going through at this time, what's the difference essentially between his experience and that experience, as I mentioned, of Judas? We might have supposed in light of this scene here of denial that the devil has won and Peter's damnation is sure. I want you to be honest with yourself at this point. And as I hope to show you, and as I hope to demonstrate towards the close in a little bit, it's important that we go through this experience. It's important that we come face to face with the reality of our sin, and that we not trudge past it without dealing with it. It's important that we do so. So ask yourself this, have you ever felt the way that Peter surely did here? Felt like you have utterly failed the Lord and that you're trapped by your own sin and hypocrisy? That there is no escape. There is no hope. No way out. Does it seem ever to you as though your hope is lost, your profession is vain, and you are not a Christian at all? Do you hear the rooster crowing in the background? The rooster calling for your condemnation. The Scripture says that the blood of Abel cried out against Cain. Is it likely or possible that this rooster is crowing, calling out for the condemnation of Peter? You ever been there? You ever been in a place where you, place where you feel so separated from God because of your sin that you're brought to a hopeless position? Well, what do you do from that point? How is it that as a Christian that you come up out of this low place 
of denying the Lord. Well, I want to suggest to you that the crowing of this rooster was not the anthem of the devil, but it was a trumpet call of God. Consider with me briefly, back in Luke chapter 22, and read this promise, this account, this glorious account of what we're seeing worked out in front of us. Luke 22, begin reading with me at verse 54. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him. For he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. What's the point in reading that account from Luke? I praise God that His sovereign rule and the promises that He's given in His Word are not limited by anything in all the created realm. There is nothing outside of His power, including roosters. But I want you to pay special attention to this, especially if you're one who faced with your own sin against God and feeling of separation from Christ and asking, what must I do? I want you to notice something very important here. In this telling from Luke, we read this. Peter says this. He denies the Lord the third time. He hears the rooster crowing and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. All of a sudden, he's reminded of the promise, the prophecy Jesus gave of his denial. But more important than that, his eyes are caused to be fixed on Christ himself. The thing that sparks this change, this turning of events in the life of Peter was looking upon Christ and remembering Christ's word. That is what began drawing Peter out of this hopeless position. The face of Christ and the word of Christ. That is the point that you've got to take away from here. You see, it is never, it is never a focus on your sin or yourself which is going to lead you out of despair. It is a focus on Christ and His Word. And apart from Jesus looking upon Peter and the Holy Spirit coming and reminding Peter of Christ's Word to him, he would have remained just as hopeless as Judas had been. Now, keep this in mind. I believe it's a fair description of Peter throughout this scene unfolding before us that Peter was living as if he were somebody else. And this is crucial. This is critically important to our experience as Christians. Everything we've read about Peter up until this point indicates a man with an iron will, with grit, with determination, and a confident trust in Jesus Christ. Think of some of these prominent expressions that Peter made. 
He declares on one occasion, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, you didn't come up with that yourself, Peter, the father. He's the one who's revealed this to you. On another occasion, many people leave and abandon Jesus. And he asks, will you go away also? Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life, Lord. You're the only one our hope is in. Bold proclamation. And most recently, Peter has said to the Lord, though all else deny you, I will never deny you. Even if all of my fellow brothers, these other disciples deny you, Lord, I never will. Here's the bold confidence of Peter. And yet in our text, he seems to be a cowering, impotent, weak man with no grit, no determination, no willingness to suffer for Christ and only worried about saving his skin. He becomes a coward all of a sudden. What I'm suggesting to you is that as Christians, when you live in unrepentant sin, it causes you to live as if you were somebody else. To live in unrepentant sin as a Christian is to behave as the dead man or woman that you used to be. The testimony of the Scriptures, if you're in Christ, is that's not who you are any longer. But you've gone back. You've begun behaving once again as that coward that you once were. That one enslaved to sin. And, and think of this. There is this sense about you that you're not even really almost aware of what's going on. I mean, you read this account, you can almost imagine Peter just kind of sitting there warming his hands, not even thinking about what he's got going on, what's happened to him. He's not even he's almost oblivious of the fact that he's even denying the Lord until he hears the rooster crow. That's the thing that brings him back to himself and says, Peter, what are you doing? Wake up, son. It's, it's not well with you. And as a Christian, when you're in sin, surely you know this experience. When you finally come to yourself, perhaps in the midst of some sexual enticement that leads your heart and mind away from God to look on something that's profane or in an argument with your spouse and you feel the anger bubbling within you and you're lashing out at them and then before you know it, you're looking back on the person who was saying those things saying, where did that even come from? I wasn't myself. Almost as if the language of Paul, there's something, a force within me that's trying to get out. But that's not who I am. And I thought about this, at least as an aside, you know, over the last several days during the fair and just watching people carrying about and all their busyness and all of their enjoyment and fun. It was a wonderful time. Our kids had a blast, I think. But I started thinking once again about a fascinating word you're familiar with. The word amusement. Do you know what the word amusement means? You probably have an idea. An amusement park, a theme park. What is amusement? Entertainment, you might think. The word amusement. The prefix a uh, or a means no. So no, muse. You know what the word muse means? To think. Amusement means to stop thinking. You shut off your brain. You're so enjoying a fleeting pleasure that you're not actually thinking about anything. And I thought about how fitting a term that was. Here it is, fair time. Many farmers barely getting through the harvest this year. Now finally, here's some time to just, okay, minds off of everything. Sit on a ride, push a button, play a game, watch a television show, read a book, do something, anything that lets me escape from the reality of the world around me and not think about what's actually happening. To be amused. 
But I'm arguing that when Christians are confronted by their own sin, they're drawn out of a numb and drowsy, mindless condition where they've stopped thinking about their life as it is before God. Now, I want to give a word of warning here in case you heard my description of how Peter seems to be this man of grit and determination and strength. And then in our text, he's this weakling and coward that in case you think that what Peter most needed was to maintain that iron determination, to bow his neck and grit his teeth and press on in his own strength. It was Peter's self-reliance that was ultimately his downfall. As a matter of fact, I believe you can make a very clear biblical case that the reason that God allowed Satan to sift him in this way was to teach Peter to be humble and to not be so confident. He says, though all deny you, I won't. The Lord says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're so confident in yourself. The next time you see Peter standing before the Lord, you know what happens? Peter's mouth is closed. He's not boldly and arrogantly asserting things. And the Lord's asking him, do you love me more than these? And Peter's just, Lord, you know that I love you. There was a humbling that was necessary. And so I'm not calling us as Christians to bow our necks and say, I'm going to be godly in my own strength. I do believe one of the greatest hindrances in all of Christianity today is that we have an unhealthy confidence in our own strength. And perhaps it's high time that we hear a rooster crow. A reminder to us that we are desperately dependent upon Christ and we're utterly weak in our own selves. But I ask in light of this, I mean, this is a bleak picture. And just because Peter, as we've read, Peter saw the Lord, the last thing you read about him in Luke's account is he went out and wept bitterly. So he's failed In this dark night of denying of the Lord, he's utterly failed. And then all of a sudden, he's made aware of his failures. The horrors of his sin before God. If that's where you're at, I failed God. Where do you go from there? Where must you go? I want to ask you to turn with me and read from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Tell me if... Search the Scriptures for yourself and see if this is not a fitting description of the reality for a Christian. Luke chapter 15, I want to begin reading in verse 11. Before I begin reading, I want to share something with you. There is oftentimes been debate, especially amongst critically minded and very biblically minded men concerning a parable like this. And this is the way the argument typically goes. Well, you can't use a parable to try to say things that the parable wasn't specifically meaning to say. And in your Bible, it's likely that the heading of this section of Scripture is going to say the parable of the prodigal son. And in fact, that is what I would like to consider with you. But if you go and read the grander context of what's happening here, Jesus is being confronted by Pharisees who were upset that He was receiving sinners. And so this parable might rather be titled the parable of the elder brother who was sinfully and arrogantly supposing he had a right to things that the sinner didn't have a right to. Upset with the fact that the younger brother, though he'd wandered for a while, was restored. Now that's true and right. But let me also suggest to you at one and the same time that in this very parable, God is revealing something to us about His purpose for His people. How it is that we're supposed to respond. And what essentially we're going on to see the way that Peter responds. So with that in mind, 
It is important that we maintain the context. And yet there are truths woven throughout this text that are worthy of our consideration. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, being Jesus, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, 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 give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The final thing I want to look at with you in light of these words, in light of Peter's own denial and how to cope with our own sin, is the way in which we're often prone to think wrongly about God. We're prone to think wrongly about God when we're made aware of our sin and our failure. Are we not prone to imagine whenever we've been in the place that Peter was in there in his own denial? Are we not prone to think, I can't go to God? As a matter of fact, this kind of feeds that vicious cycle. I've sinned once. God's not pleased with me. I'm a hypocrite if I begin praying now after doing what I've done. So we don't go to Him. And then that produces a going to something else for comfort, for excitement, for a sense of relief. And the cycle perpetuates itself. And we're afraid to go to God because we fear that when we come to Him, we're going to be met with a furious scowl and that we'll be lucky even as this prodigal son, as he says, at least my father, I can be a servant in his house. Almost we come to God sometimes after we've sinned thinking, well, we'll be lucky to escape the fires of hell as nothing but unwanted servants that he still receives because he's a gracious God, but probably doesn't really want us there. He's not really interested in hearing from me after my failure and my sin. But I maintain that the character of God as Father towards His children, which is demonstrated in this parable, is that He loves His children with an everlasting love. The Father's joy at the return of His people, at the turning again, repentance, turning to God, the joy of the Father is unparalleled 
And see, God is the very one who's calling you and I as his people to return to him. And I maintain that God is not calling us home in order to heap burning coals on your head. He's calling us home in order to celebrate the recovery of one he loves. To say, come in, be restored, be reconciled, enjoy relationships. And I maintain that to deny that, to suggest or to think for a moment that God will meet you upon your return with a scowl or a frown is to bring into question the work that Christ has accomplished. Why do I say that? Well, the grounds that we have, you and I, the grounds we have for certainty of this kind of fatherly affection, this kind of running to meet him on the way. He have expects to show up. Don't you realize that what that prodigal essentially said? How many of you know, when is it usually that the sons get the inheritance from the father? When he dies. Be like Seth saying, Dad, you're as good as dead. I'd rather have your money than you. That's essentially what this prodigal has said to his dad. Now imagine, is that not exactly what we do when we're in sin? We push God out of our minds. I'm not going to live in light of him. I wish he were dead and gone. Away with him, crucify him. And in light of that kind of an attitude towards God or towards his father, we expect to be met. Well, what's he doing back here? Well, did you enjoy your time away in the city, son, squandering all the money, hating me? We think that's how God's going to receive us. And yet he takes off running, doesn't even let him get all the way to the house before he meets him. Puts a robe around him. Ring on his hand and says, Get the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. My son's back. Well, I say that to deny that is to question what Christ accomplished because the grounds of our certainty of that fatherly affection is guaranteed on the basis of Christ's finished work for us. And it's even further than that because it's not just Christ's finished work. Now, let me. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm saying this is wrapped up in the Trinity itself. That the Father who chose you, the Son who died for you, and the Spirit who sealed you with this spirit of adoption guarantees that God will entreat you as a son or a daughter when you return to Him. My final question is, and it really matters very little whether you say, I know for certain today, here today, that I am already a child of God. The character of God before you now is calling upon you to do the same, whether you are lost or saved. The question is, do you hear the rooster crowing? The sound of that crowing rooster to Peter was a reminder of the word of Christ, and it caused him to look up and see the Lord. And it produced in him a weeping bitterly over his sin, a godly repentance. Peter's grief, his godly sorrow, came as a result of seeing Christ and remembering His Word. And we'll go on to consider in another message down the road what that caused him to do upon the first glimpse of the Lord as they're out on the sea that day. Here's the charge to you today. If you hear God saying to you, return to me, come home, do not assume that he is a father who will meet you with anger or bitterness or treat you as some wretched creature that your soul, you say, I am wretched. Yes, you are. But you, if you're in Christ, have been washed by the perfect blood of Christ and there is no more pronouncement of condemnation. 
God does not see you or call you wretched or vile. He says, beloved, righteous, spotless, child of mine. That's what he says to you. The charge is to trust his perfect love, which has been demonstrated and purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's my final charge. Be delivered from the dark night of denial by looking to the Son, the S-O-N, looking to Christ, finding that He is prepared to receive you because He has already accomplished everything necessary for your reconciliation in return. And it's a lie from the devil if you are a Christian who is being asked the question, challenged, well, you must not really be His. Well, my charge to you is to look to what He did and find your full assurance in what Christ accomplished. That our repentance, our turning again to the Lord, is a, an expression of confidence in what He's done and what He said. And not a way for us to try to grab or merit or receive any of the promises He's made. And so with that, I will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word and the testimony of truth. Lord, for Your Spirit, which leads and guides us and that every providential thing in our lives is according to Your purpose to keep and sustain and preserve us to the end. Lord, I ask that You would continue that work, that even now as we gather around Your table, that it would have a, a good purpose in us to preserve us, to keep our gaze fixed upon Your Son to encourage us towards the unity that we share according to a shared faith and what He accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that You would be glorified in us, Your people, that You would continue guiding us for Your own glory. In Jesus' name.